This Sunday is known as Transfiguration Sunday. We read of what happened to Jesus that day, how his appearance was changed, and how he conversed with two departed saints. It was that day he seems to have committed himself to a course of action confirmed by God that would literally change everything. He would choose death, and God's glory and power would be revealed through his resurrection. As eventful as that moment was for Jesus, I think we also need to pay attention to what happened to Peter, John, and James. Jesus was going up on a mountain to pray, and he took these three disciples with him. There were some things they needed to understand, some things they needed to see. Just prior to this passage, we're told that Jesus asked his disciples who he was. Who did they think he was? And they gave the correct answer. He was the Messiah, the Christ, the anointed one. He was the one who would usher in God's kingdom. But I think Jesus knew that if he had pressed them much, he would have learned that they still thought of him as the one who would exercise great power and might to overthrow the Roman rulers and set God's people free of oppression and injustice. They still envisioned him leading a forceful army, vanquishing the bloody, ba the bloody battle, returning the victor to the cheers of the adoring Jews. So Jesus needed them to see things a bit differently. So he took them up on the mountain with him to pray. And as Jesus was praying, they were tempted by sleep, but somehow they resisted. And because they did, they were given a sight that left them in unbelievable awe. They saw Jesus transfigured. Now, the dictionary defines the verb transfigure as one, to alter the outward appearance of or transform, and two, to exalt or glorify. Just as Moses' face had been those many years ago on Mount Sinai, so was Jesus. It seemed to glow with an inward light, and his clothes became a dazzling white. Now, any Jewish reader would have known Luke's allusion very well. He was saying that Jesus was in the presence of the holy, touched by the divine. And Moses and Elijah were there with him. Here was proof that Jesus was God's chosen one, and these three disciples were witnesses to that proof. Without a doubt, they were right. Jesus was the Christ, the Messiah. You know, I've often read this passage and wondered why Peter, James, and John weren't themselves praying with Jesus. But I was reminded recently of a wonderful definition. Prayer is simply paying attention. If they'd been reciting prayers, heads bowed, eyes closed, they would have missed that important message that God sent them. That's not to say that there's anything wrong with that form of prayer. I'm just saying that it's not the only way to pray. And then for added emphasis, God comes in a cloud and basically tells them, this is my son, the chosen one. Listen to him. Or in other words, pay attention. Scripture says Jesus, Moses, and Elijah were talking about his departure, better translated exodus. The word means a journey by a large group to escape from a hostile environment. Like Moses, 
Jesus was going to lead his people out of captivity, but this time it wasn't just a Pharaoh from whom they'd be set free. No, this time it would be different. It would be sin and fear and death itself through which they'd be led so they could see that God is there through it all and still there on the other side. The talk was not about what was going to happen to Jesus, as important as that was. It was about what he was about to accomplish. We know that the four men then went back down that mountain, joined the others, and began the journey to Jerusalem, where Jesus' mission was indeed completed. And I wonder, I wonder if those who traveled with him began to pay more attention as they went with him to Jerusalem. I wonder if the image of that transfigured face was strong enough to fortify them when they later saw it bruised and bleeding. I wonder if they could juxtapose the image of Jesus standing there between Moses and Elijah with the sight of him hanging on the cross, common criminals flanking him on either side. Did they find a kind of strength and courage from that brief encounter with the holy on the mountaintop that day? This week, we begin the journey to Jerusalem, the season we call Lent, a season when we travel with Jesus to the cross. And I think God calls us to pay special attention during this period in the church year. Some of the Lenten disciplines are supposed to help us become more aware of the God who meets our needs. They are destined to help us see more clearly who God is. They are structured so that we might begin to see that Good Friday is not about what happened to Jesus. It's about what he chose to do so that God might be glorified. I want to tell you a wonderful story. My friend Leanne Turner, who's the pastor at Little River just down the road, Little River UMC, tells a wonderful story of her own mountaintop experience. And I asked her to write it down because I wanted to share it with you because it talks about how on the mountaintop we can be transfigured and our vision becomes less clouded. She said, in the summer of 1999, I had the opportunity to travel to a little village outside Cochabamba, Bolivia, elevation 8,445 feet, as a part of a medical missionary team. Now, my background is not in medicine, she says. My healthcare skills up to that point were band-aiding boo-boos and kissing owies. But even so, a team of eye surgeons, dentists, and nurses, there were, even amidst all of those, there were jobs for us non-medical types. She said, I did the paperwork and was trained to test for glaucoma, fill prescriptions, and fit glasses. And that experience, she says, changed my life. I learned to see God in new ways, and I learned to see myself in new ways. I came home from that trip and began the process of becoming an ordained elder, and the United Methodist Church, much less the journey that Colin's on right now. When I was in the mountains of Bolivia, she continues, I had the opportunity to watch an eye surgeon remove cataracts from a patient's eye. As I stood there watching the surgeon's skilled hands make the tiniest cuts and most minuscule sutures, I was moved by the miracle of the human hand. And as I looked at that eye, as I studied its parts and movements, I was touched by a God who loves us enough to create us with such intricate, miraculous parts. 
I saw the surgeon remove that little button that obscured the person's ability to see, and I rejoiced that she would leave that operating room now able to see differently. I think God wants all of us to have encounters with the miraculous, the holy, so that we might learn to see differently. I think God wants our clouded vision to give way to a way of seeing that confirms for us that there is a hidden holiness which exists in ordinary things and in ordinary people. If we pay attention, we might come to see that our communities are holy. We might come to know that our world is holy and that God permeates every inch of it. Leanne continues, I mentioned to you that my official job was to work with the eye doctors, but in Bolivia, I ended up with an even better unofficial job. I was the team's bubble blower. When patients would get backed up waiting to see the doctors, I had the pleasure of going out into the courtyard and blowing bubbles with the children waiting there. She says, I can't begin to tell you what that experience was like. I'll never forget the faces of those children, the smiles, the laughter, nor the sheer joy and love on the parents' faces as they watched not so much the bubbles, but their children enjoying the bubbles. One little girl in particular stands out in my mind, she writes. She must have been around two and had probably never seen bubbles before except the occasional one that might have floated up as her mother washed clothes on a rock. The look of wonder and awe on her face as she reached for those bubbles touched me in a way difficult to put into words. I can't help but think that God must feel something like that when we pay attention. I've thought a lot about bubbles since then. Bubbles, it seems to me, usually have a positive connotation. We associate them with good things. Celebrations often include bubbly beverages. Children generally choose sodas over Kool-Aid because what? Bubbles. A bath is just a bath until you add bubbles. A part of the popularity of the Lawrence Welch show was not just the music, but the bubbles. (laughs) Bubbles add pleasure. They bring joy. I think God must be blowing bubbles for us all the time. We're surrounded with them, and we just don't have eyes to see them. Bubbles are shells of soap filled with the breath of the Creator. In Genesis, we read how God reached down and formed clay into this body and then released into it God's own breath. We forget that, don't we? What a different world this might be if we treated every person as a shell of God's making with God's very spirit breath inside. Then you see God is never farther away from us than the nearest person. If we pay attention, we might come to know that we are holy, that God dwells not in the shrines or tabernacles, but in us. We might come to know that our neighbor is holy, the place where we are most likely to meet and serve the mysterious, holy, incarnate one. As we move into this Lenten season, I wonder how we might better come to see the holy all around us. How might we reach out to those God is blowing our way? How might we practice paying attention? What is the one thing we might do to clear our clouded vision so that we can see the holy in our life? Thanks be to God. Amen.